Hello, everyone. Welcome to another fantastic edition of the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Vogel, and joining me today, all the way from the UK, is the amazing Lisa Forte. Lisa, I know we've been trying to get you on the show for a long time. Super excited to have you on the, on the show today. Yeah, it's, it's really good to be here, and apologies for all the delays. <laughs> well, the important thing is that you're here. We're chatting. Really excited for, for the conversation, and uh, I always enjoy having a, a fellow Italian as well on, on the show as well. <laughs> <laughs> Go Italia. Um, I want to start maybe with um, a little bit about your background and sort of illuminating uh, our audience here um, about your background and a bit about uh, Red Goat Security as well, which by the way, I absolutely love that name. Uh, but maybe if we could just sort of start with your origin story. <laughs> yeah, my origin story is a bit weird. I didn't actually um, get into cybersecurity in the kind of typical route, I suppose. I actually studied law um, and then I did a master's in international law. So looking at sort of how states and countries interact and go to war with each other and the legalities around all of that. Um, And then I actually ended up um, in a really weird situation, but I ended up working for a maritime security company um, who, you know, part of my job was to put armed guards on board ships to protect them from pirates look at how the ship is sort of built, um, the schematics of the ship, uh, work out how we could protect the ship from a pirate attack off the coast of Somalia. So if pirates got on board, how could we slow their advance to the bridge uh, and keep control of the vessel? So actually quite a lot of the same things that I'm now doing in cybersecurity, helping companies prepare for attacks and thinking through those steps was the same thing I was doing physically with ships. Um, I then worked in counterterrorism um, for UK special branch policing and then um, for one of the UK police cybercrime units and then started Red Goats about four years ago, almost to the day, actually. <laughs> that, that was a great that we're almost on your, your uh, anniversary there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in, in, in terms of um, what you do at Red Goats, are, are there certain are there certain organizations that, that, that you like to, to, to help or what type of services do, do you focus on there? So we do some training. Um, we do some inside of threat program development as well for companies. So, so those tend to be companies that work in very innovative spaces, such as pharmaceuticals or engineering or tech that have a high uh, rate of R&D. Those are the companies that are most at risk from insider threats. Um, but sort of the main thing we've really been doing, certainly over the last year, is running cyber crisis exercises for companies. So for their sort of their board or their CMT, their crisis management teams, to help them really prepare for the eventuality, the worst case scenario that is you have a breach, you have an attack. Um, how do we handle that? How do we contain it? How do we bring things back online? Um, and in what priority? And all of these things can be worked out on paper, but you have to also test them in an exercise scenario. Otherwise, you don't know whether it's going to work or not. You know, that, that, that's a really interesting concept, you know, the, the cyber crisis management piece. Uh, is, is that something that primarily larger organizations are focusing on? Is that something that maybe smaller, mid-sized organizations should, should be doing more of? 
I think it's harder for smaller organizations because um, it, well, I suppose in some ways it's harder because uh, they haven't got that maturity that some of the bigger organizations have. Um, but conversely, they haven't got the complexity and the number of offices and staff and employees that big organizations have. Um, for me, my the typical clients have, have been financial services um, and maritime companies purely because of the regulation those industries have and the requirement, be it formal or sort of advisory, that you run cyber crisis exercises. So they typically tend to be um, the the most mature in this way. But um, definitely, I would say in the last year, the number of different industries that have come to me um, wanting exercises, especially on ransomware, have been huge. The, 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 the organizations that have been coming to maybe in the non-regulated spaces are they coming to you reactively, like maybe after a cyber incident or a close call and they're wanting to make sure that they, they do better next time? Or is it truly proactive in, in terms of how they're reaching out? It's actually usually when one of their competitors has had a breach <laughs> um, <laughs> and they've suddenly thought, okay, that happened to them. What can we do? We need to do something now. Um, so that tends to be the real drive. And I often think that actually when they see a competitor um, or a company that's closely linked to them in some capacity have a breach. I don't think there's some anything really more powerful than that in getting the board's attention. You know, um, maybe looking into the crystal ball, you know, and, and looking forward uh, into 2022. Um, what what do you see as maybe uh, being uh, ongoing? Maybe not necessarily ongoing, but in terms of how cybersecurity is going to be marked in the year 2022, is it going to be the continuation and rise of ransomware? Is it going to be you know? grander and larger scale data breaches, data breaches is just keeping more of the same. What, you know, as you look into your uh, crystal ball, <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you sort of foresee for 2022? I actually don't think we're going to see an awful lot of change. I think we're going to see a progression of the sort of status quo that we find ourselves in now. Um, for example, if we take ransomware, in the last kind of two years, we've seen a professionalization of ransomware groups. Okay. So it's, it's not just the situation now where you have organized crime groups who managed to get a little bit lucky and hit a victim with, with some ransomware and whether they return the data or access to the data or not is very much up in the air. Those days are long since gone. It's very, very professional now um, as an operation. It's, um, you know, it, they're sort of rated by insurers often in terms of how reliable that ransomware group is. And I think we will see a continuation of that and probably a growth in that until some sort of action is taken. Um, I think also, you know, with the sort of competitiveness that we see now, I think we're going to see a rise in insider threats as well. Um, primarily because we see a lot of competition from certain countries in the world that are very keen at stealing or appropriating um, intellectual property, research and development from countries such as the United States that, you know, as a country generate a huge amount of IP year on year. Um, and I think we're going to see a rise in that as things get more and more competitive globally. Um, and, you know, and that's really interesting, Lisa. And then you know, during the pandemic, as an example, you know, we've seen working from anywhere that that paradigm really take off. Do, do you see anything further evolving from that? Or is that just sort of maybe further groundwork of that being laid as that becomes more and more common? Um, I think the pandemic has thrown some really interesting challenges our way. Um, I think, you know, I think actually in some ways it's been, it's been a real eye opener for good. Um, and I say that because I actually think it showed us 
that collectively and globally, we can adapt really fast when we have to. It's not to say we did it well, and it's not to say we did it without any vulnerabilities rearing their ugly heads. But what we did see in the pandemic was a global mass migration from office working to at-home working, which is incredible. And I think seeing that has really given me actually more hope, actually, that we can actually tackle this in a better way. Uh, that's really insightful. Um, the the um, I just remember now I, there's a question going back to cyber crisis management that I meant to ask you. I want to circle back to that now. Um, what does a good cyber crisis management plan look like? Or conversely, what does a bad one look like? Um, I can tell you some of my worst ones. So one of my worst ones, I think, was um, running an exercise and the the CMT, the crisis management team, who usually are comprised of your CEO, CFO, CIO, you know, C-suite level individuals. Um, and they, they basically spent the entire time trying to work out how they could lie their way out of it. <laughs> Um, and, and it was, and it was quite entertaining to watch actually, because they were digging themselves deeper and deeper into this hole. Um, and I think what it really showed me was that, you know, nothing is really, truly private. You know, you have employees who will talk, you have customers who will talk, you have the media who want a story. And so if you, if your initial response is coming from a place where you're denying something happened or you're lying or you're making it up or you're fabricating, um, it's not going to end well for you. It's really, really not going to end well. So I think the key is sort of managed transparency, kind of, you know, giving people enough information that they think they know what the story is and, and they think they know what your response is. But similarly, you know, we don't want to just regurgitate everything that's going on out into the public domain, because we also have to remember we have to protect our PR, we have to protect our image and our brand. And that's not necessarily conducive with spilling out everything um, that we're doing. Yeah, no, and, and you know, th this may be a continuation of what you're saying there. And, you know, and one of the tr uh, troubles that we have, at least with, um, you know, uh, organizations here in, in North America, um, is that, you know, sort of helping them distinguish between a technical incident response plan and the sort of the cyber crisis management piece. You know, often we'll, uh, we're engaging with, with organizations, they'll say, oh, yeah, we have an incident response plan, but maybe it's just a very small technical playbook of here's how, how, here's how to deal with a, you know, a compromised email account kind of thing. Um, what are sort of some one or two motivational threads that we people can use to explain to you know, the C-suite board of directors that an incident response plan isn't just for IT? It's not IT's plan or the IT service provider's plan. It needs to be an organization's uh, plan. So one of the things that I try and communicate is actually something that the British police use and the British emergency services use. I don't know if it's the same kind of terminology that you use in, in North America. Um, and we kind of frame it as gold, silver and bronze teams. So your C-suite, your CMT or your gold team, which are your strategic team. So they're not getting into the nitty gritty of detail of what you're doing of um, of anything like that. Then you've got your bronze and silver teams that are more tactical teams. They're more sort of firefighting on the front lines, if you like. 
Um, and those people are the people who are kind of doing those, as you said, those sort of technical incident response plans. And it's very crucial that the, the gold team, the strategic team, don't get that role modeled up, muddled up and sort of um, start to venture into sort of tactical mode, which is very tempting because actually when we're doing an exercise or when we're running a crisis, it's it's very tempting to start going into almost a micromanagement role of, of trying to do everything. And it's just impossible. So it's very important that you have a strategic team that are looking at a strategic level at how we handle the crisis and then have layers underneath that that report up. Um, but again, all of that needs to be tested because it's very all well and good writing it down in the most beautiful flowchart ever known to man. But if you can't actually execute it, it's just a pretty picture that you put on the wall. Uh, that's really well summed up, Lisa. I, I think that's really, really insightful, you know, and um, I want to make sure, you know, as we're um, into the latter stages here of our discussion, I want to make sure that um, we talk about um, respect and security, you know, the organization that you founded. Um, I'd like to learn a, a bit more about that and talk about more about the still the dangerous, like better term, you know, bro culture that still exists uh, or toxic male culture that exists in cybersecurity. Yeah, so it was a bunch of us that co-founded Respect and Security. Um, it was really born out of just hearing loads of stories from colleagues and peers of really horrible things that had happened to both men and women uh, relating to sort of stalking, harassment, abuse, racism, sexism. And it just got to a point where we just sort of thought, someone has to be doing something about this. We have to be doing something. Um, it's our responsibility to, you know, our peers, to ourselves, but also to people who are coming up through the industry to make somewhere that's safe to learn, progress, et cetera. So we founded Respect and Security, um, which I think is respectandsecurity.org if you want to go visit the website. Um, and companies from around the world have been taking our pledge, which essentially says that um, we will take action against anyone who is harassing or abusing our own employees. But also, if you are harassed or abused by one of our employees, contact us and we'll look into it. So it's not sort of mandating any corporate action. It's just saying that we take it seriously and we do not think it's acceptable. Um, and we saw that a lot with the in Europe, in, with the Euros, with the football that happened here. There was an awful lot of racial abuse that happened towards a lot of the players. Um, so I think it's something that generally society is open to receiving. And we've had loads of corporate people, uh, corporate organizations taking the pledge, such as um, everything from sort of know before, trend micro, big companies, all the way down to small two, three man bands. Um, so it's really open to anyone, uh, any company who wants to take this seriously and wants to make a difference. I appreciate you sharing that, Lisa, and uh, I'll make sure that um, uh, our company, CyberSC, signs up for that as well. Um, uh, just one final question on that. Is it something that, you know, over the course, you know, I mean, you've been in, in, in the field for quite some time. Is it something that's been getting progressively worse? Is it just that it's never been dealt with in, in, until um, recent memory? Why are we sort of in the situation that we find ourselves in? I think it's a little bit of both. And I think the cyber community, the issue, the sort of the positive we have that's also a negative is that we're super connected. We use online forums a lot. We are connected with people all over the world through things like Twitter and Discord and all of these places. Um, 
but it also sort of really opens us up to abusive behavior, which is an unfortunate side effect, unfortunately, of it. Um, I think lockdowns and the, the pandemic has really made it worse because people have been isolated, um, frustrated, um, and doing things they ought not to be doing. But I also think uh, one really important takeaway for everybody, you may not have been a victim of this, you may not have actively trolled someone or abused someone online, but one thing that I know I've done and a lot of people have done is jumped on a Twitter thread, for instance, thinking you're defending a friend, but essentially you actually become a bully because what you're doing is attacking someone who's being called out without necessarily knowing all the context behind that. And one thing I've become very aware of is that actually doing that in defense of one of my friends can actually also be perceived as bullying. So it's also about just checking our own behavior online, making sure we're always behaving respectfully and thinking twice before we post something, I think. Absolutely. I think that's how our paths originally crossed, you know, with, uh, I, I, I was definitely seeing that even on platforms on LinkedIn. I thought, you know what, uh, maybe I should just be a positive troll. I mean, trolling has such a negative connotation to it. You are uh, the original you know, so positive troll. Definitely. That, that's right. <laughs> the OG. But, uh, um, you know, it, it, I'm just, just curious, you know, it is part of the you know problem is that there's still relatively, um, little diversity on multiple levels. I mean, cybersecurity as a whole, there's still a lot of people, generally males, who have come up through IT that make up the cybersecurity workforce. Um, what is it that we can do to make the workforce more open to people who just aren't, aren't from an IT background? I think we need to do a better job at selling it. We need to get into marketing. And this is something I said a lot, you know, actually, I think one of the key soft skills for cyber people is marketing and sales. Because what we have to do in our jobs is often sell security concepts to people who are non-IT people, right? That's a marketing skill. But we also need to market it to other generations and see ourselves as in competition with law and medicine and really sell our industry to these young people and tell them how great it is. And I think one of the traps we can fall into is talking about and airing our views on just the negative aspects of the industry. And so what you're essentially doing well, for example, law and medicine are saying, this is great. Look, come and join our career. We're saying, well, you know, the problem in InfoSec is we don't have any women and we don't do this and we don't do that. And there's all this abuse. And what you end up getting is this really negative dialogue of, of information about our industry. So I think it really comes down to the fact that we just need to market ourselves better and learn how to do that. Yeah, and that's definitely not a, not a skill that many people in IT, let alone cybersecurity, have uh, um, ever tapped into. I know it wasn't until I became an entrepreneur that I even tried <laughs> this is not learning easy. that skill. So you're, you're you're absolutely right, Lisa. And you know, I, I'm very very grateful uh, to you for joining us on on the show today, so late in your day. Um, you know, uh, it was just an amazingly awesome conversation. Th thank you so 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 much. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And just a, a note to our loyal listeners and viewers, um, thank you again for joining us today. If you're not following Lisa on Twitter or LinkedIn, be sure to. She is absolutely fantastic to, to follow. Um, I want to uh, also give a reminder to check out previous episodes of the Cybersecurity Matters podcast on our YouTube page or on your favorite podcasting platform. But until next time, be well, be safe, and we'll see you again on the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Mm -hmm.